Crosstown Conversations, and we're going to kind of pick up the conversation uh, to some extent where we left off last week, because I'm still kind of on this uh, story, and the story essentially is how we make decisions about how to prepare for an oncoming disaster and how to deal with it in the recovery phase. So there was an article in the New York Times on the front page today that said U.S. shows signs of improvement in aid response. So I have little doubt that should probably be true to some extent, but um, (laughs) I, I still have very big questions about the Uh, formula, the tools, the protocol that um, decision makers in both the public and private sectors are making in the the advance of an event and then in the aftermath. So um, I I did a little calling around, and and we're going to have joining us in in just a minute as soon as we hook them up – a, a gentleman by the name of Brian Walshon, who is a civil engineer and professor and evacuation expert at LSU. And he's quoted as saying, um, quote, the stuff we're doing is not rocket science, but it's having the political will and the need to do it. And he feels that we we are improving. Um, you know, I, I asked him just before I went on the air if he knew that They just announced on the news uh, in the past hour that eight people died in the heat of a nursing home uh, that was supposed to have uh, some power at least, and apparently it was close by, if not across from the street from a hospital. And so um, what was going on in the decision-making for how to handle those patients in that nursing home? And, And I know you all recall in New Orleans, we had uh, some similar issues here, both in hospitals and nursing homes, where people were just simply not moved out of um, untenable environments fast enough. So it, it, it keeps coming back t- to me uh, as to what are the criteria, um, what are the rules, so to speak, or, or what, is, what are the guidelines for how folks think about these events in advance and how they think about them um, after the fact. I don't know if we have Brian on the line yet. Let me see, Brian? Okay, not quite, so I guess we're trying to get him on. Um, but uh, if, if you looked at um, the difference between uh, the protocol in Houston and the protocol in Florida, it, it was markedly different. Of course, very, very different storm. And that's what people are always saying, that the events are so different. It's really hard to have formulas, in a sense, to to anticipate how to deal with them. Um, well, well, that may be true. I think there should be some kind of criteria and formula f- formulas for how we evaluate the circumstances that are um, evolving and decide, for example, on evacuation questions. So Houston decided to tell everybody to stay in place, partially because they'd had a really bad evacuation experience before that. Again, um, was the reason the evacuation was not a good solution uh, because it was not a good solution for this time, or was it because... Um, the last time it just wasn't well managed. I mean, that, that's, to me, one of the big issues. I think we have Brian now. Do we? No? Can you hear me? Oh, now I can. Okay, great. There you are. <laughs> so um, did you hear some of the comments I just made? Yes, I did. In fact, 
You know, of, of, of all the people I've talked to, um, not just about this event, but in prior evacuations, be it Katrina or Rita or, you know, on and on and on with all these storms, with the way you just, the questions that you just asked are probably about the best, most intelligent questions I've ever heard asked before. And I think that, you know, there are, there are logical answers to those questions. Um, some of them I have, some of them I don't. And I'll do my best so, uh, to try to answer them. Um, so I don't know where you want me to start first. <laughs> start where you, you feel we should start. Uh, I, I really want you to kind of, um, you know, uh, let's be sort of methodical in it. And, and Brian um, Steele is going to, um, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean Brian, I mean Mike Steele, um, who is is involved with a, a, a an immediate response program is will join us shortly too. But go ahead. Okay. Well, I think you to, to start the, with the with the question of of should we evacuate or should we not, or if we should evacuate or when should we we evacuate? Those are all complex questions. I guess I'll start with that. And Please. Every evacuation of event is unique and different, um, but there's a lot of similarities. Um, the other issue that I'll also say, kind of as, a, as an overall um, idea here, is that these, the decision to evacuate um, is fundamentally, at least when an order, I guess, is, is issued to evacuate, it is, it is ordered, or that, that, that order is made as a life and death issue. It's not a convenience or a, um, you know, a, a casual thing. It, those decisions are made as a life and death um, uh, question, as, as a life and death issue. So when we look at evacuations, there's, there's three parts, if you will. There's, there's the, the hazard itself. So, you know, in this case, we're talking about hurricanes, but we could be talking about nuclear power plants or wildfires or terrorist attacks or you know, any one of a, of, of a number of different hazards. The second part of that is the population itself. So those are the people who have to move from an area of danger to an area of safety. And then the last piece of that is what we would call the network or the egress capacity. So it's like how many people can you get out? <laughs> how fast can you do it? So when we look at a hurricane, for example, we have – a lot of advanced warning time. So we have on the hour, or uh, um, on, on the magnitude of days, if not a week or more, to, to track and to understand the movement and the speed and the strength and the, the area that's going to be impacted by that, that condition. Then, based on that, we have to look at the people. So how many people is it going to impact? Is it 100? Is it 1,000? Is it millions? Then looking at what we can do with the, in, in the case of a hurricane, looking at the, the infrastructure, the roads, the buses, the traffic signal systems, in order to move people out. So while, while hurricanes give a lot of advance warning time, the flip side of that is that they also impact very large areas with occasionally very, very large populations. When we look at a case of a Let's say a building on fire, we're talking about a small area with smaller populations um, with perhaps very little warning. Um, so that, that's, that's the calculus, if you will, of, of evacuation decision-making. So when we look at specifically, and, and stop me if I'm rambling here, but if we look specifically at, let's look at Harvey. So Harvey, when we look at Houston, Houston does have a very robust detailed uh, traffic management plan, if you will, for the Houston region to move a lot of people. And it involves contraflow, the use of shoulders. And then there's another plan that is part of that that looks specifically at moving low-mobility people, uh, the elderly people in hospitals, uh, you know, those populations that you just brought up, even tourists and homeless um, are part of a lot of evacuation plans. But that evacuation plan for Houston is really predicated on a slow-moving Cat 3 or stronger hurricane, very similar to, to the criteria in New Orleans. So when they were looking, when I say they, I'm talking about decision-makers in Houston are looking at 
the approach of Hurricane Harvey, what I'm guessing they saw was a storm that maybe met those criteria, but it was also, you know, more than 100 miles away. They didn't anticipate major storm surge. So their decision of whether to call for this major mass evacuation was pretty clear to them at the time that, no, it wasn't needed. Um, Now, the other thing that I've heard a lot of people say is, well, if you listen to the governor, he said that people in low-lying areas should should have evacuated, you know, that are prone to flooding. And I agree with that because one of the things that I hear a lot of discussion about the Houston evacuation or non-evacuation specifically is, is, is almost as if it was a zero or 100% evacuation. Like we either had to move 2.5 million people or no people. When that's not necessarily, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be the case. So the problem is, is that we don't necessarily make evacuation plans or orders for rain events. And that's really what it was in Houston. Um, another thing that I heard was, well, look, if we would have evacuated a lot of people, you know, they would have been trapped on roads that would have been flooded and, and those types of things. Well, the idea would be to evacuate people and to get them out of the area before the roads were flooded. Right. So, you know, that's why that was a little different. And then to, to answer the last part of your question about whether an evacuation is good or bad or whether it should be made or not is a very difficult question. But it most fundamentally, the way I've heard it described, especially by emergency managers who have to make these choices, they will say that it's, it's, it's basically counted in terms of life and death. If we have an event that we don't evacuate for and no one dies, well, then, then that was a good decision. If we have an event that, like Hurricane Rita, for example, where an, uh, an order for, uh, to evacuate was issued for Houston, um, and more people died in the evacuation than died as a direct effect of the hazard itself, then, you know, the, 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 the thought is, is, well, that was a bad evacuation order because it really wasn't needed. Well, you know, let me let me uh, break in here for, because um, I, I understand all of what you've said, but I mm-hmm. guess my question really goes to what the tools in the toolbox of the decision maker are or are not. So, okay. you know, what, when, I, when the mayor is faced with, as he was in the case of Houston, predictions of very um, heavy con- uh, uh, rainfall for an extended period of time, he could pretty much, he knew he was going to have flooding, Okay. So um, now to what extent and exactly where those are, you know, calibrations that needed to be made. And I'm just wondering, you, you, you know, how, how, when he sits down with his crew, with his homeland security people, with his emergency response people and so on, where, where's, the, where's the guidebook? What, what, what are the criteria for deciding if and when. And I, I think a lot of people, I know for me, I'm watching this. Of course, I've been, you know, listening to cable television incessantly because of the Shakespearean drama in Washington. So there I am watching. And um, I, I'm, I'm hearing this guy say he's not going, you know, he's telling people to to, to stay home. And I'm saying, wait, mm-hmm. didn't they just get through saying that there's going to be like serious flooding because there's going to be a lot of rain over a long mm-hmm. period of time. And of course, we had just dealt a week before, I think it was, or two weeks before at the most, with a flooding event in mid-city New Orleans where mm-hmm. it came out of the blue in a sense, although again, there were predictions of it. But there was a lack of communications of information about our infrastructure that made it so hard for the people um, involved in the decision-making, in that case, to make the, the right decision. So what about that toolbox? What is it? That's, again, you asked a lot of great questions in there. All right, so, so the toolbox, so to speak, if, if we talk, let's, let's kind of keep it easy, and we'll just talk about hurricanes. The basic toolbox there is the National Weather Service forecast. So they're, they're tracking the storm, and they're seeing the strength, the projected track, the development, the forward speed, you know, the areas that are likely to be impacted 
by the effects of that storm, which the major killer for hurricanes is storm surge. So historically, people die from drowning, not necessarily from the wind effect. So in New Orleans specifically, the big threat there is drowning and is flooding, particularly from what they call uh, well, from storm surge, but not what they call freshwater flooding, which is you know rainfall. The, the, the ability to forecast or to predict very precise areas that are going to get rain or not in advance, far enough in advance to get the word out to people and to have them be able to make some kind of protective action decision is difficult. Now, if you look at, let's take, again, the, the evacuation plan for New Orleans. Again, I said that that's really based on a hurricane, and that's a one-size-fits-all plan, if you will. So there is one plan for the city of New Orleans. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily change. Now, it can be scaled up or down to some extent, and it can be, you know, Maybe um, maybe may, the orders can be made with greater urgency or, or targeted at certain areas. But really, the traffic management plan does not change. There is one plan for that. And that's made for, like, a mass, mass movement of people. So the idea, at least historically since I've seen the plan develop, was really to get people to understand that plan and I think there's some reluctance, and I, again, you'd have to ask the people who make the decision, but I think there's some reluctance to, to, to make evacuation orders that, you know, that are different or that, that might use a different plan, so to speak, that might be complex for people to talk about. So I guess getting back to your original question, the, the tool in the toolbox to make the prediction really is, is for, for, for a hurricane, it's going to be those National Weather Service or National Hurricane Center forecasts. Um, short of that... Well, I mean, that's the, those forecasts um, uh, uh, give you some idea of the severity of the circumstances that you're going to be dealing with. And, and, and although it's capricious, especially as we watched in the Florida situation, the storm run up the West Coast instead of the East Coast... <laughs> You know, there's always that, uh, those last-minute turns of storms that you, you can't predict. But, again, um, it, it just seems to me that you would have some kind of if-this-then-that uh, plans that um, help a, a mayor not just say, oh, well, we just can't evacuate everybody all at once, but rather – um, if we're going to have flooding, let's say, primarily in the bayou sections of the city, which is what happened. It was in the lower um, areas. I mean, Houston is actually a lot of high ground, and, and he didn't have to worry about that high ground, of course, until they started fooling with the reservoirs. But in the meantime, he didn't have to worry about that so much as he had to worry about the, that lower-lying area. I, I, I don't feel that the decision-making is, is, is a, a systematic process. And, and just knowing what the weather predictions are, I, I don't understand how that's nearly enough. And if, if I'm a mayor of a city and I come in, you know, most of the people who become mayors, they're not, they're not scientists and they're not traffic planners and they're not engineers. And, you know, these are people who care about their place and who other people place their trust in because they know they care. And they assume that they're going to get people like you and other experts to help them uh, map out their strategies. And I, I just don't have the sense that there is, you know, um, a kind of, you know, if-then-what um, uh, actual series of, of solutions. Now, I've, uh, of, of, of alternatives for um, a mayor and his team, because obviously this is not a decision that a single person makes um, to guide them. Um, Mike, are you on the line? Uh, yes, I'm here. Okay. So, so, so Mike, I, I, I'm interested uh, primarily as we phase Mike into this conversation, we're going to address the issue of, again, what happens afterwards and what kind of decisions are made about how you are going to deal with people coming back to their uh, uh, homes or their neighborhoods or not. And that was, of course, very controversial in, in New Orleans. Again, um, we were kept out 
for a long time, and a lot of people couldn't get into their homes to mitigate the effects of, of the water. So that was, uh, again, a whole other different set of circumstances. But um, you mentioned a program, let's see, I just uh, looked at it, glanced at it again, um, that is a kind of um, way that people can think about um, how to uh, approach this. What was the name of that program? It's the... Um, it's uh, Shelter at Home. No, the, the get a oh. game plan. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that right. Is I'm, our, I'm still uh, I'm still before the storm. Okay, so um, yeah. is there something that is a, a sort of more? I assume that get a game plan is a little bit more for residents to think through how to prepare their homes and so forth. And in fact, I noticed online today when I was googling around that there's actually. I think it was Curbed is a little magazine that deals with a lot a lot of residential issues, and, and they were recommending people to uh, 100 tips for how to prepare for uh, uh, the, uh, a storm in the aftermath. But um, is there something like a get-a-game plan, um, an actual set of um, uh, a process through which a mayor and his team can go through in making this decision rather than a kind of you know, well, maybe this and maybe that. Yeah, so we actually we actually work with a lot of our local officials, especially in South Louisiana, on different exercises. And a lot of times they change the scenario of the event, uh, just as your uh, previous guest was talking about. You know, you do have adjustments that have to be made last minute based on the, uh, the conditions. But our get a game plan message, it's important to note, it's very important for hurricane season, but that is a that is a model that we've helped develop that could deal with any potential emergency, whether it be a weather event, uh, a hazmat incident, or whatever the case may be. Anything that could cause you a disruption of your life or, or force you out of your home, uh, you know, for for an extended so, period of time. But so again, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that that's something that's a tool for the home owner or the family or the individuals but but again what about for that that citywide that municipal public official who's got millions of lives to account for okay this i'll give this example because i was actually a part of this process so i I actually came into this office under the uh jindal administration but just to show you how fragile the conditions can be if you'll remember the ice storm from a few years ago oh yeah the, the the city of Atlanta basically got crippled in that storm. There were motorists stranded on the interstates, people, kids stranded at school, people were uh, uh, sleeping inside Home Depots. You know, it was it was about as bad as it could get. The the shift in that forecast involved that ice line, the the line where the ice was supposed to stop, dipped about 25 miles further south than it was supposed to on the on the forecast. So you're talking about a 25-mile difference disrupted probably hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, you know, through that event. The ice storms here, we decided to shut the entire interstate down. Most of the schools at the local level were closed. All the state offices were closed. And we took a very aggressive approach with that. And we would have been caught with some of those same problems had we not kind of overextended ourselves on the on the side of caution. That's a very difficult thing to do because you're talking about disrupting people's lives, businesses, everything else with those types of decisions. But sometimes, you you know, you kind of have to go with your gut on that. So it's, it's important to analyze all the information coming in, but then listen to your local officials. They know the area better than we will at the state level. And it has to be a very coordinated decision-making process. You know, we talked about it earlier. I can't really – it's impossible for us to sit here in Louisiana and tell you everything they were looking at for the Houston area. See, that was you know? actually my next so, question was going to be to both of you uh, guys, um, whoever uh, – do you know anything about how – um, the mayor there actually did, in fact, arrive at the the, the uh, decision to recommend people stay in their homes. I, I, I don't know that process. I, I know with our event last year, with the flooding event that impacted, we actually had two, you know, Up in the uh, Meat River Basin, yeah. That impacted 57 parishes 
the, you know, the New Orleans metro area was basically the only area spared uh, from those two flood events. But I can tell you, like with the August flood, you know, the National Weather Service was predicting somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, up to 10 inches of rain in certain areas. At my house, we caught 32 inches of rain. But you're never going to see a forecast, hardly, that predicts those types of levels, you know, barring some type of tropical event or anything. So, you know, decisions have to be made, but you have to kind of analyze everything coming in from weather reports, from what your local officials are telling you. You know, we have a unique situation right now with New Orleans, like you mentioned, with the pumps and everything. All of those decisions have to be based on what the conditions are uh, at that particular time. And, and, and what about you, Brian? Did you hear anything uh, about how um, the mayor of, of Houston came to the conclusion that it was better for people to stay in their homes? Uh, no, again, not not anything, you know, that more than, than what I've read. Um, and, I, and I think, and, and I, I don't know if, if, if he would also agree with me that, that I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, from, from everything that I know about the uh, evacuation plan for Houston, it, it, is in a, it is a hurricane evacuation plan for a, for a, um, a, a major storm. If there's, I, I would be very surprised if, they, if there's any quote-unquote plan or any kind of, you know, written or playbook for a flooding event. I, I would be surprised. I, I just don't see that, you know, from reviews that we've done, you know, these, the, the, the evacuation plans that I look at are pretty hazard-specific. They are what they call all hazards, and they will, they will incorporate, um, you know, different hazards. But, but it's, you know, things like nuclear power plants and things like um, uh, hurricanes, where we have a lot of, you know, history and experience with them, I think the plans are a lot more detailed, and there are kind of trigger points, if you will. But for things, you know, like rainstorms, I just don't really see um, that there are plans or a playbook, as you called it, or tools necessarily. Well, it, it, it does sound like to me we're going to have to do some work on this because isn't one of the, the expected um, – uh, developments of our climate change that is occurring, uh, that we will have. There's more moisture in the air. There's more heat uh, in the air. There's more heat in the oceans, etc. All of these are factors that set us up for more rain. So if more rain and flooding is going to become a um, common occurrence, uh, sounds like we need some work on this on this on this issue of preparing for flooding. Am I right? Um, again, what, what what I hear? Okay, now I'm a I'm an evacuation guy, and I work more on the tra- traffic and transportation side. But but everything I hear, everything I read, certainly says that we're going to have more frequently occurring and more intense storms. I'm not an expert, but that's certainly what I. What I hear now, what's interesting is if you look internationally, uh, Europe, Scandinavia, Australia, you won't. I get the impression from you know from the research that we've done that they take the issues of climate change a lot more seriously. It's not as much of a political issue as it is in the United States, um, and. So when they look at resilience planning and you know evacuation emergencies. Um, these issues of sea level rise um, are taken into account um, as, as if it is accepted fact. Um, in the United States, I think, generally speaking, I think it varies that, that we, just don't, we don't have the same outlook, is, is what I would, would say to that. I don't know about that. We. <laughs> well, 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 I'm going to say we. I can, I mean, I can add one thing into this, this part of the discussion as well. So in the spring of each year, we normally have a statewide exercise that that is probably typically our biggest uh, exercise of the year. Historically, that has always been for a tropical event. There's always, you know, we lay out the whole scenario. We we march the storm in from 120 hours out through the Caribbean, through the Gulf, or up from Mexico, whatever the case may be. But this year's event, because of the, the differences in what we've seen over the past couple of years, we actually changed that event to a no-notice flood event. And so the local managers all the way up through us and our federal partners 
had to be ready to adjust to those conditions changing. But just like with the August flood, a lot of times you don't know where the worst impacted areas are going to be until the actual event starts. You know, you may know the region has the potential for a massive amount of rain, but you don't know that, okay, that means this highway is going under and this road two miles away will stay open. So it's hard to put out information ahead of those types of events like you do a hurricane because you can't give those specific routes with any amount of certainty. Yeah. And, and that's a great point. I, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Okay. So now here's another thing I'm, I've been very curious about, and, and I'm really speaking from a, a strictly um, you know, a citizenship and with no real knowledge of this, but um, there's there's two more questions I'm really curious about. One is, I I did not see, and and maybe one of you you fellows might know if this actually occurred, but I did not see in all of the footage that I watched, much of it live during the uh, uh, just before and during uh, the evacuations in Florida. I, I never saw any contraflow, and I thought contraflow was really a basic principle of of moving people out faster. And um, I, I think one of the reasons it's so important also is that if a lot of people find that evacuation process so egregiously painful and even life-threatening as it was in Houston, Beck and Rita, um, they don't want to do it again. So it discourages the rational decision to evacuate when you should. But in Florida, it just seems like there were, in some cases, these limited highways, especially out of, for example, the Keys. Did, did, am I mistaken? Did they ever go to contraflow? And if, if not, why not? Well, um, I can I can. Partially answer that, and and I worked as a consultant. This is Brian. You know, is this Brian talking? Yeah, this okay, is yeah, this is Brian, and and I worked to a, uh, as a consultant to the Florida Department of Transportation on the evacuation planning issues in the Keys, and there, as you said, it's it's one one lane in, one lane out, effectively, uh, for a, the the vast majority of that of of that overseas highway. The, 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 the reason why it was difficult to do that is that a lot of the local responders and local authorities were worried that if something happened, if someone had a medical issue or if someone there was a, there was a car accident or any one of a number of things, that, that they would have no inbound access um, to, um, to help people. Um, and that was a major concern. So... What they looked at is using shoulders um, and That's using what I was going to ask other, you, what about the shoulders? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, say that again? Please. Well, I was just going to say that. That's what I was wondering. What I, I sort of anticipated your answer, and then I'm thinking, well, what about the shoulders? Yeah, so so a lot of but, – but getting back to the, to the specific issue of contraflow, I found this interesting because what I really like about the New Orleans plan is the – the seriousness at which they take the evacuation in New Orleans, and I'm talking about the, the leadership, the political leadership um, in New Orleans and in the state of Louisiana. And when there is a major hurricane coming and there is a, a call to evacuate New Orleans, there is without a doubt they are using contraflow. And contraflow is a lot more complex than what you think. And in, in New Orleans specifically, it involves actually contraflowing into the state of Mississippi on I-55 and I-59. So it's not, it's not a, a, an issue that is taken lightly. Um, but in other areas, I think a lot of there's, – there's a lot of reluctance to use it. Um, and the reason why is because it takes a lot of manpower to close down routes and to turn traffic around. And, and what happens is, is your on-ramps become off-ramps um, in the, in the contraflowing direction. And what happens is, is that it's difficult to get people on and off in the wrong direction. A lot of the control and the design features of those roadways don't really facilitate that movement. And if you don't do it right, as they didn't do it right in, in Houston and Hurricane Rita, they kind of did contraflow on the fly you can actually create bigger problems than what you saw. Right. Now, that having been said, 
there is absolutely no doubt in my mind, and we've done studies, you know, in simulations and in an observation of actual contraflow, that it makes an enormous, an enormous benefit to the movement of traffic. Um, but it's got to be done and used properly. And I think part of the problem is, is because of the complexity, because of the amount of manpower that, that's needed, um, and the confusion that it can cause, I think there is, there is a lot of reluctance on the part of many states to not use it. So, guys, um, let me tell you, um, let's see, oh, I've got to move on to my, uh, the other part of my program, and, and obviously we're not going to solve this whole question in, in this program, but uh, how about if the headline, instead of saying shows signs of improvement in aid response, it said something more like, U.S. shows need for further improvement in aid response. Would either of you disagree with that offering of an alternative headline? I certainly I'm, I'm sorry. Could, think, you, could you repeat that one more time? So I, the I, headline as it stands now says, U.S. shows signs of improvement in aid response. And I'm saying maybe that headline should say, U.S. shows need for more improvement in aid response. We didn't even get to the questions that Florida is now just beginning to deal with, the issue of the lack of power and the implications of that and how you deal with that. And clearly there are problems with how that works as well. And, and I wish I could go into, maybe we'll, we'll pick this conversation up another time soon and, um, and plumb that issue a little further, but I've got to get on to something else. But how about as an alternative headline, U.S. shows need for more improvement in aid response. Well, I think with every event, the nature of emergency management is always building on previous events. So there's never a time where you're 100% covered. The other thing that's important for the public to understand from expectations is there will always be heartache with disasters. There is no way for any government organization to cut out every you know every bad thing that happens because of an event like this and so you know you work at it and you strive for that but it's it's just never going to happen so the the public needs to understand their role and be ready to evacuate have a game plan have all of that in place so no matter what impacts them they'll they'll be ready to handle it starting with uh, you know their families themselves all right and and I, I, I would agree with that. I think we get better. There's still a lot of improvement to do. When, when we talk about improvement, we learn, as, as was said, we learn from each event, and we're getting better. We're getting a better understanding of it. But I think what's important, and, and I'll, I will echo those comments, that, that when we talk about a mass evacuation of people um, as a life-and-death measure, it's not done for convenience. Um, and we get congestion every day in every city across America That's right. in routine, routine rush hours. Right. So the, the, the idea that we can evacuate hundreds of thousands or millions of people without congestion, without problems, quickly, it, it's, it's, just not, it's just not realistic. We don't, we don't plan or build or design transportation facilities for this level of emergency. We design them basically for morning peak hour and afternoon peak hour. And, you know, not only that, the connections between, let's say, New Orleans and Jackson and New Orleans and Baton Rouge are not, those are, those are you know, four-lane freeways. They're not multiple-lane highways all the way. So, right. you know, lots, lots to improve on for sure. Listen, thank you guys very much. You're very game to take on my skepticism. And um, uh, I'm not sure I've uh, uh, quenched my thirst for um, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, uh, a more comforting sense of a systematic approach to these decisions. But um, I, I, I do agree. There's no doubt that there's been improvement, but um, – Let's watch what happens in Florida over the next days and weeks and months, in fact, years, and um, learn, learn some more. Thank you. I'm going to have you both on again. I appreciate you, you being with me today. All right, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I'll take care. Um, so now we turn to um, 
a whole different um, ball of wax. We're going to – does anybody use that expression anymore? That's such an old <laughs> expression. I have, I, I have no idea even what it means, but um, – uh, I can't wait to talk right now uh, with Leah Hennessy from the Music Box about their fall lineup, their fall season, because it is fabulous. And I come from a city where the, the, the fall, uh, right now there's um, just pages and pages about the fall seasons in New York and what's going to be going on up there. And this is up there with the um, scope and richness and variety of planning that's going to be going on with the Music Box Village right there on the cusp of the Industrial Canal in the, um, I guess you're in the upper Ninth Ward. That's correct. We're at the edge of uh, edge of the Ninth Ward, really. If you could go any further, you'd be in the lower Ninth Ward. We would be on the bridge. Um, I had some folks at the Stalling Center ask me if we were on the bridge the other day, and we're, right. we're almost there, we're but almost not quite. <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, what people who don't know what the music box is and have never been there it's a great big question mark on their foreheads when you talk about it. So I'm going to let you first sort of set the stage, so to speak, as to what the facility, the place, and the the underlying concept of the uh, programming there is. And then we're going to go into this fall's very, very exciting and rich um, uh planned uh, performances that are going to be taking place there. So Absolutely. what is the Music Box? Um, the Music Box is a site for play, exploration, collaboration, and community in New Orleans. Um, it is an art installation. Uh, we could call it that. We could also call it a performance venue. It's a collection of houses um, created by our team, um, Delaney Martin is our executive director, so it's really her brainchild. Um, and it's a collection of houses that celebrate the architecture of New Orleans, as well as um, the way in which culture is really celebrated on the streets here. So the idea is that we are ourselves a little village where music can spill out of our um, our houses, music can be made on our houses. Um, and it's really just a celebration of art, architecture, and music, and all things that are New Orleans. All at once. So let me just add to this, because what you have to understand, folks, is that this is a site. Let's, let's start with a site. And um, there are multiple buildings all kind of clustered around each other. And when you sit in the audience, you can view most of these different um, architectural elements. Not all of them are houses. Some of them are just literally what I would call architectural elements. And and they are part of their own, they're like instruments in a sense too. They're, they're large musical instruments that are used to um, create sound that contributes to the programming that could also include musical instruments and vocalists and dancers. And it, it's just one great big kind of almost it's not a circus and it's not circus-like in the sense of acrobats and people walking on stilts and, and um, caged animals and that kind of thing, but in the sense of multiple creative activity all going on at the same time, yes. It's certainly always spectacle, um, and there's always a dramatic element to what we are doing there. Um, the, the specific examples I like to give people are that we have a house that um, – for example, when you walk inside, it's got creaky floorboards, and each floorboard triggers a different audio sample. Um, we have another house with a sliding door, and that acts sort of like a fretless bass. So the houses actually make sounds, and what we get musicians to do when they come, um, like the incredible guests that are coming this season, they spend about a week with us, and they spend their rehearsal time out in the village, out in the yard, playing, really, um, seeing what kinds of sounds they can get, figuring out how that works with their repertoire currently, and devising an all-new performance for us. The performances at the Music Box are one-of-a-kind creations made just for us. 
Um, they might be realizations of a particular artist's repertoire, but it's always with that music box twist. So just before we go into the program for the fall, let me, again, kind of situate this for folks so they kind of understand. So describe, if you're coming down St. Claude Avenue and approaching your site, tell people how actually they would get there. Sure. Um, so we are on North Rampart Street just off of Poland, um, as if you were going to go to Bacchanal. Um, and the restaurant right by the river. Yes. Right? So we are right by the river as well. Um, all the way down at the end of North Rampart. And I think what um, is a little bit kind of adds to the mystery and mystique of the music box is that you head <laughs> all the way down North Rampart where it ends at the levee. You cannot go any further unless you're going to climb on top of the levee. And right when you're there, to the left, is a large warehouse building um, with a kind of a decorative metal, corrugated metal um, facade. And guests are invited to walk into our, our um, sort of marsh forest there and around the side of the building before they ever enter into the village. Um, so there is a big sense of, like, mystery that builds before you walk in. It's an adventure. It is. It is. <laughs> it, but you do have parking. We so do I, have I, I parking. I like to always tell yes. people that, you know, you can park there. You can absolutely park there. Um, you don't charge for your parking, do you? No, we do not. Right, and that's important, too, yeah. for a lot of folks. They don't want to have to add that on to the ticket. Now, and, and there's a lot of things that happen at the Music Box in between performances that don't have a ticket price. That's true. Um, this fall, we're very excited to announce that we've made public hours free for all Louisiana residents. We are thrilled to be able to do that and bring in a wider swath, hopefully, of our community. Um, we'll be open Fridays, 3 to 8 p.m., um, Saturdays from 10 a.m. until 8 p.m., and Sundays as well from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, all of those days from 4 to 6, we do a happy hour at our bar. And we've also planned for a number of local chefs to come in and do pop-ups on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, so there's usually food there as well. It's a great time to come in with your family, with friends, with you know guests from out of town, and spend an afternoon. We really want to be a place during these public hours where people come and stay um, and can enjoy a cup of coffee or a drink with a friend as well as engage with our musical village. And what days generally are you open from what day of the week to what day? Of the Friday week? Uh, through Sunday. Friday. So those your your public hours are every day of of the days that you're open. Yes. So right? um, Friday, Saturday, Friday Sunday. Saturday, Sunday, we are open to the public. Um, Thursdays uh, we have a budding education initiative, and, and Thursdays we typically have field trips. Um, so teachers that's when listening your students to the program. And teachers yes. Are to yeah. Come. Oh, that's great. All right. So let's talk about this fall. I'm just going to read off the titles of these um, uh, programs uh, to begin with and the dates just to get it in before we lose anybody who uh, uh, checks out uh, before the show is over. So um, September 29th coming up, A Viper's Dream. We'll talk more about that in a minute. October 13th, Peaches. October 14th, Pitch Dark. October 21st and 22nd, this is my favorite, Tremanisha. A ragtime, not really a ragtime opera, but an opera written by the ragtime artist Scott Joplin. And October 31st, Airlift's second annual Halloween Bash. How does that sound? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a blast. Let's start with The Viper's Dream on September 29th. What that's, what's that all about? Sure. A Viper's Dream is a hazy story of love and longing that explores our city's storied underworld. Um, it was conceived by Amy Johnson, who is a dancer here in the city, and Ben Pulser, who is a trumpet player, um, plays with the Jazz Vipers, and is seen frequently around town. Um, they conceived of this original piece that combines traditional jazz, blues, and um, even some electronic music with tap and swing dance. And um, I think there's a little bit of voguing that might even happen with it. But it's it's a true uh, fever dream <laughs> of a show um, produced in conjunction with the New Orleans Swing Dance Festival that comes up at the end of so, the month. So that program is really, it sounds like it's kind of a dance-focused uh, event. 
but with me, with live music? Certainly, certainly. We have some amazing artists on the program as well. Um, Bruce Sunpie Barnes will be uh, there. Yeah. Um, Aurora Neeland is also performing. Um, Jason Jerzak and Sarah Quintana will be performing as well. And we're thrilled to have all of these people in our space and really kick off the season right with a big show. Sounds fantastic. And that starts at what time? Uh, we have two shows that evening, one at 6 p.m. and one at 8 p.m. What's the cost? Um, it's $15 now. Uh, that's advanced tickets available on our website, musicboxvillage.com. And there'll be 20 at the door on the day of show. That's still not a lot of money for all that entertainment. No. Um, we want to keep things open to all members of our community, you know. Considering what people have to pay to do some big old concert with some out-of-town celebrity at the Superdome, <laughs> that's that's pretty modest uh, charge. October 13th, Peaches. Peaches. So Peaches is the electro queen, um, and her shows are no, her, her music is known for being outrageous and maybe a little raunchy, maybe a little subversive, but a whole lot of fun. Um, so that's what that show is going to be. Uh, it features an all-local, all-female band of New Orleans musicians, including um, Shawnee Salt and Tiff Lampson of The Givers, as well as rapper Delish to Goddess. So it's going to be a good time. Oh, Delish to Goddess. She's fantastic. So, yeah, that's, that's going to be a kick. It's going to be fun. October 14th, Pitch Dark. Pitch Dark um, is the project of Kelly Love Jones, and it is a rhythmic and sensory um, experience that is about overcoming a fear of darkness as it pertains to both losing sight, but um, fear of darkness and maybe the unknown. Um, so we're really excited to be able to bring her in, as well as um, Weedy Brahma, who is an incredible percussionist based out of New Orleans, and Gambian Cora player uh, Sona Jabartef as well. Fantastic. And that's back-to-back -back with Peaches. It's one big weekend at the Music Box. So that, so that, um, that, that music is... African, it is yeah, maybe part Caribbean. African, Caribbean. I think there's probably um, some soul and R&B that's integrated into it as well. Kelly is um, a beautiful guitarist and singer-songwriter. I think it could, it's fair to say that almost all of these performances involve more than one genre of music. Yes, we are all about um, cross-disciplinary collaboration, whether it be within different streams of music or different art forms. Except for Trimanesha. Yes. Which is um, a fascinating story. Tell us about it. We are going to be presenting at, um, a full production. This is on October 21st and 22nd, by the way. Go. It's two Nights of Trimanesha, um, a full production of Scott Joplin's opera. And we're doing that with Opera Creole, Cripple Creek Theater Company, and the New Resonance Orchestra. It will be our first opera at the Music Box. Um, I have the pleasure of not only doing promotion, but doing tech for tech and rehearsals for us as well. So we're excited for this challenge that's going to be doing an outdoor opera in our space. Um, and it's really a beautiful story um, that is about community and, and um, also about hard work and it I think it speaks a lot to our time even though um, it's it's an older piece it, it, it was written in 1913 and Scott Joplin a lot of us assume everybody knows who Scott Joplin is but um, not everybody does know was one of the major um, original American composers African-American who wrote in the in the era of ragtime and is actually credited by many as one of the real founders mm -hmm. of Absolutely. ragtime. Um, and so that's why t people tend to call it a ragtime opera because he worked in that genre, but it, it goes beyond that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, um, it is a full-fledged opera and the talents at Opera Creole um, will be there really exhibiting um, all of the skill and prowess that it takes to pull off a true opera um, in this production. And Opera Creole... Um, they are amazing. They, they are, are just phenomenal performers. Again, African-American, I think exclusively. I'm not sure of that. I believe that's true. Um, I know that we're working with Cripple Creek Theater Company, so I believe um, the two combined. it'll be, yes. Right, but, um, and, and, but they are uh, really uh, fabulous voices and performers, and so... I will be there. That, that's the one I'm, I'm definitely going to make sure, make a point of attending. And that show, um, tickets for all of these shows that we've talked about are on sale now. 
So you can go to our website and purchase them. Tremonisha is going to be a seated performance. Um, so there are two levels of seating available, um, and I, I would definitely encourage listeners to buy their tickets now if that sounds exciting because there is a limited number of seats. And what will the ticket price on that one be? Um, it's $25 for um, advanced seating and then $40 for the VIP preferred seating section. Yeah, because I was going to say, uh, opera is, of course, um, involves so many more production elements than anything else, so you had to rake in a few extra dollars to cover the cost of that one. <laughs> Yeah. Um, October 31st, um, Airlift's second annual Halloween bash, and, and I didn't come for the whole thing last year. I'll be honest with you. I had been somewhere else, and I came there, and I kind of hung out in the parking lot and just watched people coming and going <laughs> in their costumes and taking pictures of them for our newsletter. We always run a scenes section of our newsletter that we put out in advance of the radio show, and um, in it... I like to um, uh, capture those moments, mm-hmm. and man, the costumes were wow. Well, Halloween is always um, a scene here in New Orleans. Uh, in some senses, a dry run for Mardi Gras, right? Oh, <laughs> it, it is the kickoff, right? From Mardi Gras. Um, and this year, uh, we'll be inviting back some of our friends from Crunchtown Theater and Black Forest Fancies to help us um, imagine uh, a really spooky Halloween experience. It is open to all ages, but. Um, you know, the plans are still coming together. It could be quite quite scary. <laughs> now, a lot of the groups that you work with are well-known to folks who follow you and um, to, um, let's say, uh, younger people out in, in the world. Uh, but for those folks who are not as familiar with, for example, the group that you just mentioned, um, what did you call them? Um, Crunch? Crunchtown. Crunchtown. Players, yeah. I'm not familiar with them. So... Um, if somebody wants to get a little bit better a flavor of some of the talent, I suppose they can capture the name from your website. Absolutely. Go to YouTube, plug it in, and they'll get a taste Definitely. of Definitely. And we, um, That's we what like I do to, to yes, and is, we yeah. like to promote our collaborators on our social media as well. Um, so we're, we're so fortunate to have an amazing group of collaborators coming up this season. New Orleans is so fortunate to have so many um, creative... Everybody wants to be here. Yes. <laughs> Those um, of us who are here, but uh, folks from away as well. Yeah, so we're, we're very excited and we're, we're glad to be working with them. Um, I should very quickly just mention we're doing an immersive dinner around the Viper's Dream experience um, on September 27th. Uh, that is a fundraiser, so tickets are available on our website, but it is an immersive dining experience that's going to feature a preview of the Viper's Dream show, as well as um, kind of be a 1920s speakeasy-themed evening. Where is that going to be? That will be at the space as well. We are hosting our first dinner, um, and we hope to be doing more in the future. How, and what's the ticket price on that? Tickets are, um, plates are 150 so that's a fun it is racer a fun racer <laughs> and, and you know for folks who like to support that was actually my next question how do you guys support yourselves because i know these productions are more expensive than obviously what you're charging so you must do a lot of fundraising sure um as it is for any nonprofit, really we do um a fair amount of fundraising and grant writing um and are always kind of growing our connections to that extent. Um, but, yeah, these shows these shows definitely are big productions, and um, I hope that's what makes them a little extra special for audiences. What do you guys hope to accomplish for the city of New Orleans over the years? What an excellent question. Um, this is our only our second year in a permanent space, and I, I feel that when Delaney and Jay and Taylor and Alita decided that just, the first names of my team there, my colleagues, when they decided to build a permanent home for the Music Box, they really wanted to be a resource for the community, someplace where education is happening, where workshops are happening. We have metalworking um, classes that are even happening now, um, and a site for cross-disciplinary collaboration in these performances as well as um, on a smaller scale through kind of pop-up things that happen throughout the course of the year. Um, we really are invested in this community. We're invested in the Ninth Ward and want to be a presence there for many years to come. You see yourself staying in that location? Yeah, I think term? so. Yeah. I think so. It's exciting it's to be out. kicking off a second year. So 
right there on the cusp of the Lower Ninth Ward, yep. where a <laughs> lot is happening in the art world as well. I'm, um, you know, I just, I'm a big fan, and uh, I, I know, as you said, Delaney's, it's uh, her, the brainchild, but there's so many people who are part of making this work, including yourself, Leah Hennessy. Where are you from, Leah? I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina. And so, and the Carolinians, we have so many people from the Carolinas <laughs> and New Orleans. I don't understand exactly what that relationship is, but well, they're yeah, very, how did you get They're here? very similar cities. Um, I, I actually moved from Boston, where I had been for school um, and studied music there, but um, wanted to move back south, and Charleston and New Orleans definitely share um, architecture and a bit of a relationship. But I like to call Charleston the uh, buttoned-up older sister of New Orleans. <laughs> well, we're certainly not buttoned-up, that's for sure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so fall performances of the Music Box starting September 29th for the Viper's Dream, Peaches, Pitch Dark, Tree Manisha, all at 4557 North Rampart. For those of you who use GPS to get around, 4557 North Rampart Street, right by the Industrial Canal. How grateful. Thanks so much for having me, Jean. I'm excited to be here sharing um, a little bit of what we do. I enjoyed having you, and I'm looking forward to the performances. And that, folks, is it for today, and I will be back with you next Wednesday night between 6 and 7 on Crosstown Conversations. This is Jean Nathan signing off on WBLK Real Talk for Real Times. Bye.